Hello there. Welcome to the Saroy channel, wherever you are in the world. And thank you so very much for joining me this evening. But I've got a fabulous story for you tonight that you're just going to love. If anything is going to warm the cockle of your hearts, it is this extraordinary tale which absolutely just will blow your mind. It certainly did with me. But before we get started with the story, I'm sending each and every one of you loads of love and don't forget to get that lovely hot cup of cocoa because you're going to need it. Dear Sarah and all your lovely listeners, my name is Wayne and my Bigfoot encounter happened in 1998 when I was 18 years old. I grew up as an only child raised by my single mother in a humble modest area of Seattle where we resided in a tiny respectable suburban dwelling. That was the most dilapidated residence in the entire street. Put it this way, it was much more in need of some TLC to put it back into pristine shape. My mother was incredibly embarrassed by the appearance of our meagre home, as we had peeling paint everywhere on the exterior walls and a leaking roof. She would tell me that houses were exactly like people, and when they grew older they needed the help of a very good plastic surgeon to creatively put them back together again. She assured me that plastic surgeons were very expensive to come by, so some houses were literally forced to age disgracefully through no fault of their own. I remember thinking that our poor little lowly house was like little Humpty Dumpty that could not be put back together again, and it made me very, very sad. My mother worked so incredibly hard as a dental hygienist to cover all our bills, but it was never easy for her as a single parent. My father had died when I was only five years old of pancreatic cancer. I had no memory of him whatsoever. My mother must have loved him terribly because she always had his picture on her nightstand and she would relentlessly read all the piles of love letters he had written to her over the years. I knew she must have adored him so much because I would always see her wiping away the tears after she had studied a picture of him. Growing up, she had absolutely no interest in dating whatsoever as her priority was literally focused on raising me. In truth, she was a phenomenal mother with the biggest, most generous and loving heart. One day when I was only a little boy who had just finished my first year at a local school in the area, I was standing in line to speak to Father Christmas at a local department store in Seattle. I couldn't wait, but I remember I got pinched on my back by a very mischievous-looking boy who was called Peter, and he was giggling so much. So I started trying to pinch him back and then he cha I had to chase him all around the department store while our parents were keeping our places in the queue. Before long, Peter and I became firm best friends. We were quite literally like brothers and were inseparable. I remember spending copious amounts of time at his opulent prestigious mansion in Seattle where literally no expense had been spared. The grand palatial-looking mansion rather reminded me of the White House in Washington, and even my mother remarked of the stark similarity in appearance. It was not long before Peter's father literally begged my mother to pay for my school fees and all my expenses required for me to go to some ostentatious private school with his son. He told my mother that Peter was his only son and that I was the nearest thing to a brother to him and it would be an absolute privilege to pay for my school fees. My mother thought all her Christmases had come at once, because she'd always dreamed of sending me to a phenomenal school with an awesome reputation like this one had. So you can imagine we were thrilled. 
At school, Pete and I became as thick as thieves, and people often believed we were non-identical twins because we were so close. While all this was happening, my mother's house was falling apart at the seams, and she was getting some verbal abuse and intensive remarks from really nasty neighbours who told her that her house was shrinking the value of the homes in the area and ruining the look of the entire streets. I remember telling Peter about the abuse that my mother was receiving from some of the stinging neighbours who were not slow in coming forward in expressing their disappropriation. If you cannot afford the repairs to your home, sell up and buy a smaller place. You're ruining the look of our street with your run-down looking shack. When I told Peter the sad story about the incessant abuse my mother was receiving from her neighbours, I kid you not, within a day or so, his generous father stepped in and gallantly completely renovated our home by transforming it from the lowliest dwelling in our street to quite literally the most glamorous opulent home with luxurious finishes and fittings. In, in truth, it really was way too prestigious a home for our area. But who was complaining? I wasn't. My mother told me that the neighbours who'd previously snubbed her were now inviting her to all their parties. Isn't that typical? I remember her telling me that some people falsely believed that the more money you had, the greater value and worth you had as a human being, which was a very ugly big lie, because some of the most beautiful unassuming people in the world, and the most honest and reliable, were poor, and I was to never ever forget that. To, the day, to this day I still emphatically believe that money can never define who we are as individuals or our authentic worth and value as human beings on this planet. One day when I was 18 years old, Peter invited me to stay at his uncle's very prestigious hunting estate here in North America. We were not staying at his estate during the hunting season, even though, of course, even off-season, they still did have guests. As you can imagine, Peter and I were so excited and over the moon to get this invite, but I would like to keep the location of where this hunting estate actually was located very, very secret, if you don't mind, for the protection of the estate itself and the Bigfoot I was ultimately to encounter, because all these years later there are still frequent reports of Bigfoot sightings on the estate, and I would not want to contribute to invading their privacy. When Pete and I arrived at the hunting estate for a two-week vacation, even his uncle said he could hardly tell us apart. My word, he said, it is true. Your father was absolutely right. You both look like twins. The weird thing was that we actually did in a strange way, as peculiar as that may sound. Although I have heard it said before that you do become like the company you keep. We both had black wavy hair, olive skin, blue eyes, and were just under six foot tall, and were quite lanky. Peter's uncle was an amazing man, and he actively encouraged us to really enjoy the facilities on his hunting estate, which we most certainly took full advantage of. We were riding quad bikes, mountain bikes, playing golf, fishing at the lake, horse riding, swimming, and exploring the beautiful, well-maintained forests that were full of large oak trees, firs, spruces, and maples, and were teeming with an abundance of indigenous wildlife, and some of the deers were the most sizable specimens with the largest, most impressive antlers that I have ever seen in my life. I could truly see why this hunting estate was booked up every year by eager hunters from all over the globe who wanted to enjoy their hand at some hunting. 
the estate offered luxurious accommodation, including individual cabins, very delicious homely food, and all kinds of other outdoor pursuits, and it was located in an exquisite location, surrounded by panoramic views of rolling emerald green hills, mountainous valleys, rugged rocky outcrops, and imposing statuesque waterfalls, meandering pebbly streams with imposing rock-like formations, and of course a very large silvery lake that was a haven for bird life from fish eagles to the wild duck. Pete and I were sharing a small, whimsical, rather enchanting and lavishly decorated little Swiss-style music box wooden cabin that was flanked by a large wooded area. I remember I was woken up suddenly one morning at about 4am to the sounds of very definite gunshots. I immediately started to shake Peter vigorously. Get up, I said, get up. I think there's a poacher on your uncle's land. It's not even hunting season. Someone is illegally shooting. Get up, Peter, get up. But Peter was a very deep sleeper and grumbled, telling me, it's probably nothing and get back to sleep. I was still in my pyjamas and was about to return to bed when I heard some more ominous gunshots. Something was clearly going on, I thought, and I needed to get to the bottom of it now. This time I was wide awake and fully alert. I quickly put on some shoes and armed with my rifle and flashlight, I bolted out of the cabin as fast as I possibly could. Suddenly I saw him. There was a man running out of the woods that I was in no doubt was a poacher. He was up to no good. There was something distinctly shifty and duplicitous about this slippery character. He was holding his rifle and looking back towards the woods very, very furtively, almost as if he was half expecting to be pounced on by a predator who was in pursuit of him. It was that kind of concerned look. "'Excuse me, sir,' I said. "'This is private land. What on earth are you doing here?' The young man scowled at me. He was dressed in a scruffy red T-shirt and jeans, and he looked at me with a guilty, sheepish expression written all over his face, and I knew unequivocally that he had just done something heinously evil, but I couldn't imagine what. I just sensed it and felt it in my gut. "'What have you done?' I asked him. "'What on earth have you done?' Then I heard it, the most terrifying scream, such of the likes that I have never heard before in my life. It truly sounded like a woman was being murdered. It was that piercing that even my chest vibrated under the sound. It was just terrifying. It was the most god-awful sound that I have ever, ever heard. "'What the hell have you done?' I shrieked. "'Have you just murdered someone?' I screamed. "'Your wife, perhaps, or some poor girl?' The man looked at me with a look of terror on his face, as if he was guilty as hell, as if he'd been caught red-handed, and suddenly he just bolted off as fast as you can imagine. In that moment, I imagined this insidiously wicked and evil man had literally dragged a woman into the woods and murdered her in cold blood. There was no doubt that he was up to something. Did I chase after him and catch him, or go after the woman who may well be dead by now, the woman that had been screaming. I knew instinctively that there was a small chance that she could still be fighting for her life. Then I heard the horrifying scream all over again. A woman I now knew was in very definite serious distress, 
so I charged into the woods as fast as I could, searching for the anguished woman. There she was, squatting under a large oak tree, and she was lamenting, wailing and screaming, as if she was in agonising, inconsolable pain, and I could see why, because she was squatting over the dead body of a deceased loved one, and she was in a terrible frantic state. I could sense and feel her agonising, dreadful pain. I watched in absolute horror as she tried to shake the body, as if she was trying to bring it back to life, but it was completely useless because the body was very definitely dead and it was not coming back to life. I just stood there in utter awe, watching this very tragic scene unfold before my very eyes, and tears of sorrow were pouring down my face. This woman who was grieving and pining so desperately was a colossal creature of about eight foot tall, seven hundred pounds, and four feet wide. And yet, even though she was not human, she had such a human quality to her that was completely undeniable. I noticed she had very long arms, and that she was exceedingly muscular, with an enviable athletic body, that it was impressively strong, lofty, and majestic. For a moment I stood still, not knowing what to do, but then on a burst of irrational emotional impulsiveness I rushed towards this ape-like humanoid and cradled her in my arms, without any concern for my safety whatsoever. In that moment I didn't care about my own vulnerability, because my desire to comfort her far exceeded and outweighed any fear that I actually felt towards this creature. I think sensing and feeling this female's raw pain and desperate suffering was utterly intolerable for me to just stand and watch, and I simply had to reassure her in some way. I had to relieve her of the tortured distress and insurmountable grief that she was feeling. The joke was I was so small and pathetically puny in contrast to this colossal creature that I could not even wrap my arms around her gargantuan form. However, that was not even remotely significant, because she responded warmly to my touch, and even ran her large hands through my hair, ruffling it up affectionately with her sausage-sized fingers, so that it stood up in spikes. I believe that this was an expression of affectionate appreciation for me. I do remember I could hear her heart pounding through her hairy chest, and even feel her soft breasts against my body, because I was that close to her. She was whimpering, exactly like a, a dog that's distressed, and was patting my back with her big hands, and I could feel that she was so comforted and reassured by my presence. I knew that my physical touch had been exactly what she needed right now, and I had succeeded in comforting her. I was so grateful for that. I did not want her to be alone in her grief, and I had no idea if she had any other family member who might be there to help her in this grievous time. I certainly hoped that she did, because I couldn't bear to think of her alone in her suffering. After a while I pulled away and she looked at me with her big, sad, rusty-coloured eyes and pointed very, very sadly to the dead body that lay on the ground. I examined the brawny, sinewy, hefty body and discovered some gunshots on its head, chest and shoulders. There were so many, it was unbelievable. My fingers were now covered in blood from my inspection. I realised that this poor creature had not stood a chance and had been assaulted by bullets and killed by the poacher in the woods that had run away so furtively 
and so hastily. The hairy humanoid chattered away to me in a language that I couldn't understand, that sounded remarkably like gibberish, and then she physically acted out to me what had happened by miming the man with the gun, whom on seeing the male creature had clearly just fired several rounds at the criter without discrimination. The dead hairy humanoid was titanic in size, and was easily over a thousand pounds, and yes, he was scary, he was intimidating and terrifying to look at, but that didn't excuse being assaulted at with so many bullets. However, from what the creature communicated to me, this large ape-like humanoid had done nothing to deserve being killed like this, because he hadn't imposed any threat whatsoever, and had intended the man no harm. He had only been interested and curious in the human, and had been peeking at him from behind a tree, and had accidentally been spotted by the sharp beady eyes of the poacher, who had run after him shooting aggressively for many, many rounds. In my book this creature was so human-like it was equivalent to being murdered, and I began to feel this enraged anger and fury towards the poacher rising up in the back of my throat like a huge wave of nausea. I really wanted to puke in absolute disgust, as this man should not have killed this creature in cold blood like this, and clearly this was not a case of self-defence. I watched the very distressed, stoic creature digging away the ground with her very large hands, using a large stone to remove the soil, which by all appearances was exceedingly hard to shift, but believe me, she made light work of it, she made it look easy. It must have taken her only twenty minutes to dig this massive grave. She then literally rolled her partner's body into the grave very, very slowly, and then jumped in the grave to be with him. She was stroking his body for a very long time, whimpering and touching him, and then finally she jumped out of the grave. It was then that I helped her pile and layer the soil back into the grave, and we began to create a huge burial mound together. The creature then gathered some massively large stones that would have been impossible for a man to lift, but she picked them up with effortless ease as if they weighed nothing and encircled them around the grave, and finally she picked a couple of sticks and placed them on a grave in what looked like a very deliberate sign. Finally she sat down grievously and continued to whimper, but I used my words to comfort and reassure her and I even sang her some songs. I think my voice did soothe her, because she looked grateful, and she appeared to be nodding her head in time to my singing. That wasn't very tuneful, I might add. I got up and indicated that I was going away, but I would be coming back very shortly. I rarely sensed she understood what I was trying to communicate, which was amazing, because I'm not the best of actors. At this time it was about eight in the morning, I imagine, and I thundered excitedly into the main kitchen, like a rhino at full charge, nearly knocking over the shocked chef, who eyed me with a startled, rather bedraggled look on his face. I've never seen anyone this eager for breakfast before, he said. The cook was preparing breakfast for his distinguished, esteemed guests, because even when it's not hunting season on the estate, they still invariably have guests staying, who book the cabins on the land, and enjoy the extracurricular activities on offer, like horse-riding, fishing and hiking. The chef who prepares the scrumptious morning buffet breakfasts was rather surprised to see me piling plastic lunch boxes with copious amounts of crispy bacon, 
ham, cheeses, scrambled eggs, warm crisp potato wedges, sliced fruit, crisp vegetables, guacamole and cereals, not to mention bottles of juice. I told the surprised chef that I was having a picnic, who regarded me as if I was a starved prisoner of war, being exposed to food for the first time. You must be hungry, he said. That's enough for twenty people. I'm starved, I lied. I could eat for twenty people. I then proceeded to scurry out of the kitchen as fast as I could, very, very eagerly, so much so that a few eyes watched me racing out with my hands loaded with food parcels. I did happen to overhear conversations of people asking each other if they had heard gunshots at about four o'clock in the morning, and it did seem to appear that indeed gunshots had not escaped the people's staying attention. I said nothing and ran into the woods where the female creature was sitting by her partner's grave, and she had been expecting me and waiting patiently. When I opened the plastic containers, she was chattering away excitedly, looking absolutely jubilant. She opened the plastic containers eagerly, like a kid unwrapping Christmas presents at Christmas, and opened each container as if she couldn't wait to see what was inside. She let out a very excited whoop, which made me laugh. I could sense her jubilation, and we sat under the oak tree, eagerly eating together and I've never ever eaten with anyone that appreciated every mouthful as much as this creature did. When she ate the crispy bacon, she looked at me with her golden eyes, and they lit up with pleasure, and she moaned with ecstasy when she ate the bacon, eggs, potatoes and hams that she just absolutely loved. We sat there for ages enjoying each other's company as if we'd been friends all our lives. The creature was ravenously hungry and literally licked the plastic containers completely clean. And then she handed them back to me, but I showed her how you could use the Tupperware containers to keep stuff in, and then she understood what I was trying to tell her. She decided that she would keep the containers as a gift. She was so pleased, she picked up pebbles from the forest floor and shook in the plastic containers rather like a rattle and looked up at me with bright, rather amused eyes. She was so appreciative and thankful. Finally, she indicated that she needed to go, as she pointed towards the mountainous valleys where I imagined she actually lived. It was densely forested up there, with some hilly, rocky ravines. I immediately hugged her, and was enfolded by her massive form, and felt her incredible warmth and love wrapped around me. It was like being in the arms of something that was so big and so loving it was as probably as close as I was ever going to get to feel the love of God around me. I'm not ashamed to say that I started crying because I was so sad to see her go, and I wanted to spend so much more time with her because she enchanted me, and she was so human-like, so accepting, and just so authentic. When I told Peter what had transpired, he was absolutely enraged with me for not waking him up. I did try, I assured him, but you refused to budge. I cannot believe you have such an incredible experience without me, he complained. It's not fair that I missed out. You say the creature looked like a human and an ape. Please can't you take me to her now? What kind of animal do you suppose she is? Oh, please, let's go and find her. Look, she's gone home, I said, so you won't be able to see her. I'm really sorry you missed out, but you will sleep in late. You know the saying, the early bird catches the worm. You caught more than a worm, my friend. You saw a humanoid ape, a creature that nobody else has seen. 
Peter and I decided to leave a large box of delicious food by the grave full of crispy bacon and sumptuous treats, as well as a photograph of me on the box, because I wanted her to look at that photograph and remember me for years to come. And we arranged garlands of flowers around the grave in memory of her fallen partner. I was sure she would come back to visit the grave, retrieve the treats, and be delighted by what we'd done. I did never see the Bigfoot ever again, sadly, but the next day on the doorstep of my cabin, I was to discover the hugest pair of antlers I've ever seen in my life, which I knew immediately was a gift from her. The question that perturbed me for many years to come was how she'd known that I was staying at that particular cabin. Maybe they have a sense of smell, just like dogs do, I don't know. When Peter's uncle actually saw my antlers, he said they were the most impressive antlers he'd ever seen in his life and today they're still hanging in prime position on my living room wall and attract a lot of questions from guests, but I never ever tell them the story. To cut a long story short, Peter lost his mother to breast cancer three years after my encounter with this creature, and my mother and his father actually got together and got married a year after that, I kid you not. It really is extraordinary how life can work out in the funniest and the most peculiar of ways. Peter and I officially became brothers, and all these years later, we are still best friends. And our wives, believe it or not, are both sisters from the same family, which is another peculiar irony of ironies. I am now convinced that there's no such thing as a coincidence in this world of ours, because sometimes things do happen for the very strangest of reasons. The beautiful majestic creature that I encountered in the woods, I now know to be a Bigfoot, a Yeti, a Sasquatch or a hairy man. I like to call her a Bigfoot. I hope she has found another partner and raised her own family by now. I got the impression that she was young when I met her, so I'm sure she could have started all over again, and I hope she did. I have no regrets of reaching out to a Bigfoot in her time of insurmountable sorrow and grief, even if the consequences had been far different. So that is my story. Well, I just want to say thank you for that incredible, incredible story. I mean, that just touches the heartstrings like nothing else. I can't imagine, I mean, just that poor Bigfoot, what she must have been experiencing, the grief of losing her partner. Until next time, goodbye and good night.